If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. How risky were the D-Day landings? What sealed the downfall of Nazi Germany? And why did the US decide to drop atom bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Today, we're bringing you the final episode of our five-part series tackling the big questions of the Second World War with historian Lawrence Rees. In this episode, Lawrence joins Rachel Dinning to explore the final stages of the conflict. So welcome back to the final episode in our series exploring the big questions of World War II. Um, To kick us off, we're looking at the final years of the Second World War now. Um, So I wanted to start by looking at the German loss at Stalingrad. How big of a turning point was this? I think it it was a huge turning point, although not necessarily for the the ways that in sort of popular mythology it's looked on. I think how in a kind of popular world Stalingrad scene is this is the turning point militarily of the war. Actually, a number of people, me absolutely included, believe that the, the turning point militarily was probably December 1941. That's because two things happened in December 1941 of real significance. The first is that the Red Army holds the Germans back outside Moscow. And secondly, you have Japan bombing Pearl Harbor and America coming into the war and America with all of its great resources and so on is clearly going to be, I think, a decisive influence in the war. There are scenarios, counterfactual scenarios you can work on that it could have been different after that. But I think that if you're going to point to one moment that was a big, big, big crucial moment in the war, for me, it's December 1941. Some people still think it's Stalingrad, but I myself think that's a little late for being a, a decisive military turning point. Where it is an extremely important moment is because Hitler had said in in a speech he gave in September 1942 that, quote, no one will take us away from this place. He'd given an explicit promise in this speech to the German people. He needn't have openly promised this, but he did. And of course, when you're a, a charismatic leader, as Hitler was, and I don't mean charismatic in the sense we have a mean it that um, charisma is a good thing, but a charismatic leader really relies on almost being a, a, a pseudo-messianic figure to, that people believe is going to lead them forward, that he's got particular individual gifts. And if you're a charismatic leader and you make an explicit promise like that and it turns out not to be true and you don't follow through, it's enormously damaging. And I think this was enormously, enormously damaging to Hitler's reputation amongst the, the German population. He'd said, we're not going to be pushed away from this place, and they were pushed away. So that's the first reason it's vitally important. The second reason it's vitally important is because of the other leader, Stalin. And what happened here was that uh, Stalin earlier in 1942 had made a disastrous decision um, and forced through an attack at at Kharkov in May that had been a disaster. And it was clear that even though the Red Army outnumbered the Germans, they still lost. If Stalin was going to still carrying on being an incompetent general and he was an incompetent general for the most part, they could lose. 
What happened with Stalingrad is one of the reasons they won was the initial suggestion for the operation that led to the loss at Stalingrad on the Red Army side was put forward by two very talented marshals, indeed Zukov and Vasilevsky. And Stalin listened to their plan, looked at it, thought about it, went along with it. And he was beginning to learn particularly that he, he needed to trust in uh, Zukov. Not always. He still interfered. It wasn't like this sudden moment, road to Damascus moment, but nonetheless, he was prepared to listen. So I think for all those reasons, you can point to Stalingrad as being so important. So Stalingrad was the spring of 1943, which is also when the Battle of the Atlantic reached a defining point. Yes. So why was this? The Battle of the Atlantic has been going on, of course, you know, right the way from the moment that the Americans started sending us aid across the Atlantic years before. It reaches a climax here now, and it's an extraordinary moment, really, because if you look at March 1943, this was a tremendous year for the U-boats. They sank 80 uh, ships in the Atlantic. And yet, by May, the the U-boat threat was essentially neutralised. How did it both reach a high point and a low point for the German U-boats during this period? And the reason, I think, primarily is because after March, after that disaster in March, a whole series of technological uh, advances that the uh, Allies had and also military advances um, in terms of new equipment were coming on stream. So in particular, you had use of Liberator planes that were able to cover long distances. And w- what was happening, there'd always been this problem in the Battle of the Atlantic called the Atlantic Gap, this moment in the, in the Atlantic when the, you couldn't have air cover to enable you to target the U-boats from the air. And that was beginning to be closed. You also had code breakers working on breaking uh, the Enigma codes coming from the U-boats. And you also had other technological advances, including uh, on the Allied side, including one a lot of people don't know about, which is special big lights placed on the wings of these hunter aircraft that were going out looking for U-boats. And that's because at night, obviously, they could just suddenly turn these on and the the U-boat would be illuminated, so there'd be much better chance of getting them. And related to that is the sort of myth that we have about U-boats that they were, the name says, underwater boat. Actually, I met and interviewed one of the leading uh, U-boat captains of the Second World War, and he confirmed that that it's all a myth. He said that virtually all of the ships that he he and his U-boat and the flotilla he commanded sank were sank on the surface. They were operating on the surface at night. They'd try and get inside the convoys and shoot. And... Essentially, U-boats were surface boats that in an emergency could hide and drop down. But once they were down, they had um, much, much less speed and less propulsion. So they actually had to operate a lot on the surface. So I haven't mentioned all of the technological, but there were a whole series of technological advances that were happening around this time to actually come through it and counter the threat. And by the summer of 1943, the German war effort in general was was in trouble again, really, wasn't it? You can point to the month of July 1943 and say that there were a number of things that happened then that were uh, really enormously threatening for the Nazi regime and Hitler. 
And the first is that he, they'd had this big attempt to regain the initiative in the war against Stalin and the Battle of Kursk. And the Battle of Kursk, they'd been held, held back. Secondly, on the 10th of July, Allied troops landed in Sicily. This is a huge moment because obviously Mussolini is an ally of the Germans. And here now, Allied boots are on the ground on Italian soil here in Sicily. And there were reports coming in of Italian soldiers just throwing away their weapons. Um, and just little more than two weeks later, Mussolini would be overthrown. So Mussolini, the first great fascist leader, the one who was in many ways a hero to the early Nazi movement, he's overthrown. And this is absolutely of the most enormous concern, as you can imagine, in, in Nazi ranks, because how on earth, how could this happen? Suddenly it happens like he's gone. And thirdly, um, at, towards the end of July, you've got what up to then was the, the most horrendous air raid that they'd seen, the firebombing of Hamburg. And this was a, a, an extraordinarily terrifying event. Well over 30,000, I think as many as 37,000 people died in that in, in, over this brief period at the end of July in terms of firebombing. So you had all this coming together, um, all these threats. And I, I do think it's, it's important to, to think Mussolini's deposed then. And a question I've spent many, many years looking at and, 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 and trying to answer is, Mussolini could go in July 1943, and yet, and yet the war's going to last nearly two more years of suffering. And in, in terms of numbers dead, many, 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 I mean, so many more people are going to die now. And you could argue die unnecessarily because, was any of it necessary? But I mean, unnecessary in the sense that the writing's on the wall here. And yet, and yet Hitler stays in power until the Red Army are just a few hundred yards from his front door. How? How's that possible? You know, three things to focus on how it's possible. One is it's very hard to get to Hitler because he's in a, he'd spend most of his time in an armed encampment in um, East Prussia, in his military encampment. Secondly, a crucial structural reason is that Mussolini's not head of state. There's a king above him. There's a structure to be able to go and try and get rid of Mussolini. Hitler's head of state. There's no... There's no getting around him. There's no one who can have a meeting and tell him to go. And thirdly, the Italians weren't burdened with huge participation in the war in the East, though they had participated, but not to the extent that certainly the Germans did. But the Germans had been fighting what Hitler had called a war of extermination in the East. You know, I'm not saying that that all the Germans knew about the horror of the Holocaust, but they knew bad things were happening. They knew bad, bad things had been going on in the East, and they knew that the East was coming to them. So what are they going to do? How are they going to stop it? Giving up Hitler is not going to stop the Red Army making its move towards you, move towards you all the time. But if you're trying to understand how the war could carry on so much longer than it did. I think those are some of the things to look at. And yet it wasn't until November 1943 that the so-called Big Three, who we discussed in episode three, met for the first time at Tehran. So why did this meeting take so long? Again, it's really interesting to ask that because you'd think, wouldn't you, that these are the three major allies and they all ought to get together and work out what they're going to do much earlier. 
The reason they don't primarily, I think, is because Stalin is very careful and very, very canny. One of the many things Stalin understands is the power of place, which is, I think he believes, and I wonder if we can look at it today in our own politics, but as a general rule, the weaker goes to see the stronger. If you had a meeting with your boss, you never expect your boss to come to you. You always go to them. Well, why? Why Why is that? It's because the act of going to see your boss is the act of uh, obsequiousness to power. Roosevelt had wanted to meet Stalin for years. And Stalin uh, was not prepared to go to anywhere Roosevelt wanted to go. Stalin essentially said, you come to me. It's no accident that the first meeting that had taken place between two of the big three, two thirds of the big three, had been in the summer of 1942, when Churchill had made the most incredibly, I mean, he's a man in his 60s, inspiration to us all, had made the most incredibly arduous journey all the way to Moscow in the midst of the war from Britain. Incredibly difficult journey to make. Stalin had to walk a couple of yards from his office. And so if you look at the negotiations around Tehran, for why it's in Tehran, it's in Tehran because that's where Stalin was prepared to go because the Soviets had levels of influence there. Roosevelt initially refused to go to Tehran because he said, as president, I've got to be able to sign documents when they come from Congress, and I won't be able to do that if I'm there. And Stalin said, well, okay, let's not have the meeting then. So it ends up in Tehran, and it ends up this late, I think, to a large degree, because of Stalin. So D-Day was eventually launched on 6th of June 1944, something that Stalin was desperate to happen. Um, How difficult was it to make D-Day succeed? People still don't really realise what an extraordinary undertaking it was. It's the largest opposed amphibious landing in the history of the world, D-Day. It's interesting, at Tehran, there have been discussions about when is D-Day going to happen. The conspiracy theory Stalin was operating on was that the West was letting uh, the Red Army bear the brunt of human casualties until such a point as they were getting so close, or, or, or it was likely that they would get so close into Europe that they would take too much of Europe. So the the Allies would come in. To, you know, so this was the balancing act he thought that the Allies were doing. And at Tehran, the British and American generals who were present at Tehran at the military meetings had tried to explain to uh, the, the the Soviet generals there that how hard this was going to be. And one of the, the Soviet um, military officers said, well, the Red Army's been um, crossing large rivers a great deal during the campaign against the Germans. I mean, what's the, you know, what's the, what's the problem? And I think it was General Marshall on the American side who said, well, the difference is that if you fail in a river crossing, it's, it's something you can try and repeat later on. If you fail in a cross-channel crossing, it's a disaster. <laughs> it's like, so they're trying to impress on them how hard it's going to be. And indeed, it was an incredibly difficult undertaking. Uh, just on one beach, at Omaha Beach, I think there were 2,000 killed or missing in, wounded in one day. And it's significant, I think, that while we all know it was a success in the sense that they weren't thrown back into the sea, none of the major first-day objectives were taken on the first day. It was much harder than you might think. Trying to get through Normandy in what they called the Bocage fighting, which was amongst the high hedges and things, was incredibly hard and difficult. And I think it was Anthony Beaver who said Normandy became the martyr for France. That's to say that the horrendous battles in Normandy, once they were over, 
it was relatively easier for them to move forward and take Paris. But it was an extraordinarily difficult, unbelievably complex organisational feat to, to achieve that. We focus a lot on the Western Front, but as Allies fought in Normandy, there was also this major offensive on the Eastern Front happening at the same yeah. time, wasn't there? And I think this, again, is, is symptomatic of how each country perceives its own history. Because that set, later that same month, in June 1944, there was this operation called Operation Bagration, named after a, a Georgian general, famous Georgian military figure, which I think is significant because, of course, Stalin is Georgian. And this dwarfed a D-Day in terms of scale. There are, there are something like two million Red Army soldiers taking part in this. There are 165 German divisions opposed the Red Army, and I think 30 divisions were in France opposing the Allies. So you're looking at extraordinary differential. And the force of this attack was against what was called Army Group Centre, which was the pride of the German army, really, this, this main unit, in this, as it says in its name, in the centre of the Soviet German front. And the Red Army were going head on, head against it. And so it's this incredible cataclysmic battle, an even bigger loss for the Germans over the next few months than even Stalingrad had been. And in the meantime, the air war over Germany was intensifying. Um, how important was this? Best way of understanding it from, to begin with is that both the British and Americans held the view before the war began that bombing civilians was a crime, or at the very least something that, that no civilised nation should do. So it starts off with the British saying, OK, we're going to bomb Germany but we're only bombing specific military targets, marshalling yards or uh, factories making military equipment or so on. And that's what they say they're doing. And then they discover in a survey they do after this that actually that they haven't got the technological ability to do that. Many bombs were just dropping anywhere. So they then said, okay, well, we'll focus on the morale of industrial workers and what they called area bombing, which essentially meant indiscriminate bombing, the very thing that many people thought was wrong, but we were going to do it because essentially we're doing it because it's all we can do. And how else, how else are we going to show how we're fighting back and how else are we going to try and contribute? And then the Americans enter in and the Americans say in Britain, we're not going to do that kind of bombing. We're going to do specific bombing. Although it turns out that they also take part in more generalized bombing, but that's at least what their, their kind of line is. Then in 1944, you had some big breakthroughs in terms of the ability to bomb, which is, first of all, really, that American fighters could go along with bombers all the way there because that had been the problem. And also the focusing on destroying the German Air Force, so luring up the German fighters and then destroying them and essentially destroying the ability to have that kind of air cover over Germany, which meant that when you got to say, February 1945, you were able, the British were able to move on major city like Dresden in the east. And Dresden really became the kind of focus on the morality of what was happening. Because Dresden was a, a city that was full of refugees that didn't have the level of military targets that some other places could arguably have had, nonetheless could be defended as a military target because it had marshalling yards and it had a whole series of structures that any city would have. And, and so you could argue 
Well, any city that's got a major railway line, it's part of the war effort. Any city that's got these things is a part of the war effort and so on. And so Dresden was absolutely, I mean, it was a horrendous raid on Dresden. The numbers have been revised lower now, but I think it's a, you know, recognised that around about 25,000 people died there, the majority civilians. And then something really interesting happens, which is Churchill, at the end of March, says, maybe we should revisit the idea of bombing simply for the sake of terror. The, the RAF are going... What? He signed up to this. When, when Churchill first meets Stalin in August 1942, he describes in incredibly bloodthirsty detail the bombing and the destruction, of, you know, because it's all we can do to say, because Stalin is saying essentially, where's D-Day? What are you doing to help? And so Churchill is bigging up the bombing campaign and everything. And now suddenly he's saying the increasing terror bombing, terror bombing. And... I talked to a leading academic expert in the bombing campaign, and she said to me, well, thinks he's doing it because Churchill's very gifted at knowing which way the wind's blowing, and he can see that, that this is going to be something that later on people are going to look back on and say, you know, so it's all very well when the back's against the wall and you're doing it, but everyone knows we're going to win now, and people later, you know, so he's saying he wants he's covering this. His back he's covering later. his back a little bit, that, you know, this all happening. You know, everyone talks about the horror of the bombing and so on. But what about the horror of being a member of Bomber Command? You join Bomber Command and you're flying these things. You've got one of the highest uh, uh, rates of loss than any any job you could possibly have during the war. 55,000 members of Bomber Command died. And at the end of the war, there's this sort of pall, this sort of sense of, well, you know, what they did was was how should we feel about it? And you can see that that wind is blowing post-Dresden. And what about over in Japan? How is the bombing of Japan different from that in Europe? Yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating um, because to begin with, the Americans who are involved in bombing Japan look on it the same as the British did, which is we're going to bomb military targets. And I do think this is fascinating about the way wars develop and wars can go, which is it's all very well having that kind of principle at the beginning. But actually, as the war goes on and you want it to end and more and more people are dying and so on, you, things begin to move. And by 1944, uh, it was clear that for a number of, of reasons, one of which was the jet stream in Japan meant that they couldn't guarantee the level of accuracy necessary to be destroying specific military targets. So they were moving openly to doing in Japan what they said they weren't going to do in Europe, the Americans, which is that they're, they're obliterating whole towns. They're going lower, they're dropping incendiary bombs, and these Japanese towns are, are often made of timber, and they just just go. A general called General Curtis LeMay is most associated with this, who's this extraordinary driving, cigar-chomping kind of caricature almost of the incredibly tough American general, and he's going to do this. It culminates really this in March in the firebombing of Tokyo. And Again, this isn't known about as it should be compared to what's going to happen with the nuclear bombs. Because in one night in March, they kill around 100,000 people. One night, 100,000 people uh, are just turned to smoke and you know, burnt. And the figures for the deaths in the atomic bombs is very, very hard to estimate. But it's arguable that more people were killed in that one night in Tokyo than were killed by either of the two 
atomic bombs. And yet the debate about bombing is, the morality of bombing is placed around, you know, like we're talking in Ukraine now about, will they go nuclear? Well, the Americans killed 100,000 civilians, almost all civilians. I don't know the full breakdown, but uh, uh, certainly the great majority of these people were were civilians. In one night, 100,000 people. I interviewed one of the pilots or one of the air crew who took part in this. And it was fascinating because he said, well, you know, we went back and had had some breakfast and there was total distancing. Imagine you'd have to shoot 100,000 people, what that would do to your mind. He took part in, in the, the killing of 100,000 people, but he was able to have breakfast and he hasn't, because he's doing it, what was the phrase he used? It's kind of like a video game. Those figures at the bombing of Tokyo are really striking, aren't they? Hundred, like around 100,000, yes. like you say. I mean, we'll get on to Hiroshima and Nagasaki in a minute. But um, before we do that, um, I just wanted to talk about one of the last major offences of the Second World War. So the Battle for Berlin, which took place from 16th of April to 2nd of May. Could you tell us a bit about how events unfolded here? This is the big final battle for Stalin and Uratus of the war. And... He is focused very much on ensuring that Berlin stays within the Soviet sphere of influence at the end of the war. So he's moving forward, even though in the end he knows it's going to be divided between the nation, but essentially it's going to be within, sitting within uh, territory controlled by his soldiers. And he does a very interesting thing in the planning of it, which is he announces to the two main generals who are going to do it, Marshal Konev and Marshal Zukov, that up to a certain point, there's a delineation of a line between the two great armies approaching, red armies coming towards Berlin, but that as they get actually near Berlin, the line is, is blurred. It's going to be who takes Berlin first. Essentially, he's created a race. And I think he's doing that, one, because maybe he thinks that'll make them more incentivized because they all want the glory of doing it. But I think he's also doing it. He's concerned, just like if you look at that note that Churchill wrote, arguably Churchill is beginning to be concerned about what's going to happen in the post-war world. I think Stalin is already massively concerned about the reputation of Marshal Zukov and how he's going to be perceived. So this is something he's trying to do. And so to, to, to kind of ameliorate it a little bit. And so there is this absolutely bloody battle for Berlin. The fascinating thing on on behalf of of Hitler's side is that on his birthday, his 56th birthday is the 20th of April, and you're already seeing artillery coming into the centre of Berlin, uh, of shells dropping. And he's he's still not giving up. He's still not going back. And it takes until the 30th of April for the Red Army units to be like a couple of hundred yards away. It takes it for him to kill himself. And if you think back, right the way back to where we started this and we talked about the First World War and how whatever happened from Hitler's perspective, this war, the Second World War, is not going to be like the First World War. Well, it was like the First World War in that Germany lost. It wasn't like the First World War in that in November 1918, when the the armistice was reached, the German army was mostly outside Germany. And actually, the, the armistice stopped Germany being a battleground. But what it also did was create amongst the soldiers the myth that they hadn't really been defeated because they all went back in, in, 
in good order and so on. And I think in Hitler's mind, he's also thinking that, do you know what they're going to have to do this time? They're going to have to come in that door before I give up. And, and so there's that element. And then we see in the last testament he writes just before he dies, he also writes to the effect that in this war, the Jews are not going to get away with it. That's to say he's proud of the fact, he's, he boasts, he's proud of the fact that he believes that the Jews plotted to end, to undermine Germany in the First World War. And the one thing he was determined was that no matter how it ends, it's not going to end well for the Jews this war. And he's proud of the fact that it didn't. You can absolutely see the consistency of that hatred. It's horrendous. It's there. If you read his um, uh, last testaments, you can actually see it. So war in Europe was over on the 8th of May. We know this is victory in Europe day. But elsewhere, the war continued. So on the 6th of August, the US dropped a bomb on Hiroshima. And then three days later, they dropped a bomb on Nagasaki. Um, Why did they drop nuclear bombs? It's a big question because... As we sit now and look back, I mean, the first thing to say is we're absolutely appalled at the use of of nuclear weapons and the terrible, terrible damage and suffering they can wreak. But at the time, I don't know that it it was absolutely some people were saying that exactly at the time. But but there was also a sense, if you go back now to uh, what we were talking about earlier of 100,000 people dying in one night in the firebombing of Tokyo, the fact that enormous numbers of people were being killed, that cities were being laid waste, that's what they were doing. I mean, that, so, so you could say, well, what's the difference to the people on the ground, whether it's one bomb or lots of bombers? At one level, it's not quite that. At another level, of course, Truman, who is now president, Roosevelt having died in, in April, but Truman is now president. He knows that he's got the most powerful weapon yet devised anywhere in in history. And he knows he has that at his disposal. It was Sir Max Hastings who said to me that he believed in this concept called technological determinism, you know, the, the sense that once you've got something, once you've got this incredible weapon and you know the other side doesn't and it can't be used on you, it's very, very, very hard not to use it, especially when using it will undoubtedly save the lives of your servicemen because we can't know how many how many americans would have died uh, and their allies would have died if they'd had to invade the home islands of japan but you can bet it's more than did because they didn't have to maybe you know some people have argued this maybe also in part to demonstrate to stalin that we in going into the cold war that we have this incredible weapon of mass destruction there's arguments that that was the most um, important reason it was used. I don't think believe that at all. I think the most important reason it was used was to end the war and to stop American soldiers dying um, in having to have an invasion. They do it. And it does cause the uh, Japanese to surrender. It also has another, I think, unintended consequence, which is that it allowed some Japanese after the war to, to begin this argument that they're the victims. I met this Japanese historian who, who sort of said to me, not in the formal interview we did, but just sort of chatting afterwards, he said, well, of course, you know, isn't it funny that the two greatest crimes against humanity each begin with the letter H? I said, really? He said, yes. The Holocaust and Hiroshima. 
And I thought, well, that's jolly interesting because um, actually in terms of crimes, the Japanese crimes, uh, we talked uh, in another uh, podcast, we talked about the Japanese horrendous uh, medical experiments they were doing against the Chinese. I, I met Japanese soldiers who were personally torturing Chinese civilians. The, the, I met uh, Japanese soldiers who were taught to bayonet, bayonet practice by practicing on live Chinese farmers. And if you visit um, the, uh, uh, the museum in Hiroshima, it's a very interesting museum. It's a very good museum in many, many ways, but that couldn't help but get the sort of sense of it of magnanimity. It was almost, we've forgiven you. You did a terrible thing here, but we've, for, we've forgiven you, you know. And you think, well, well, actually, is that really how we should see it? When the Japanese launched this war of aggression, they launched, launched this war to create an empire in China. They were the ones who launched the attack on the Americans to destroy the American fleet. They were the one who were responsible for horrendous treatment of not just allied prisoners of war, but also the, the rape of Nanking, the terrible, you know. So you've got that background of horrendous Japanese militaristic action. But the focus on the nuclear bomb in Hiroshima was a sort of sense of, of victimhood in some quarters. Um, you know, it's, you can't generalize. This is only talking about some quarters, but, but nonetheless, there's a sort of faint, a faint whiff of it that I think is really an interesting, perhaps unintended consequence of having dropped and used those weapons there. The question of remembrance is an interesting one. And I think to wrap up, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, again, it's a big question, but how should we be remembering the Second World War? Wow. Well, I mean, I think, first of all, for me, what this demonstrates is it shows what human beings are capable of. The first thing is to look at it and think, this is what our species does. This is what we can do. And this is what we can do now. And we ended up creating through it this method of killing that could destroy us all. And so it used to be thought that by focusing and thinking of that, we could make sure that it doesn't happen again. My own personal feelings about what you kind of can take from this are, I'm afraid to say, a bit more bleak. And I wish they were a bit more upbeat. It's not a very upbeat subject at all. But there's an argument to be made that the world had a lucky break in that it happened when it did. And I say that not to be flippant in using the word lucky, but supposing all of this had happened 20 years later, and I know there's, two, there's lots of variables and so on and so on, but just as a thought experiment, there's no question in my mind, and I don't think in anybody's mind who knows much about the nature and character of Adolf Hitler. But if Adolf Hitler had had access to nuclear weapons, do you think he would have thought a nanosecond about using them? If he could have taken out London, New York, Washington, you know, whilst Moscow with the press of a button, would he have done it? <sighs> done it 10 times before breakfast, he would have done it. But more than that, imagine that um, there was a scenario in which instead of just putting the bullet to his own head and killing himself, he could have pressed the button and destroyed the, the world along with him. Because he was talking like that towards the end. He was saying the German people didn't deserve to be here if they, you know, if he could have destroyed the world uh, along with himself, would he have done it? I think so. 
and we wouldn't be here in, in, in a second. I would like to think human beings are rational, and I think they may be for large portions of their life, but there are some people in positions of extreme power who, especially old men, turns out, who you have to question their rationality. Um, and if, if they're going to be taken down, why not take us all down with them? And that's what you begin to see this, this war moving towards. And sadly today, those are some of the issues that, you know, we have to think about. That was Lawrence Reese in conversation with Rachel Dinning. If you'd like to watch video versions of any of the episodes in this series, then head to our website where you can watch them all at historyextra.com forward slash video. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.